Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Anoush, filling in for a ill Stephen Bush. And you've taken the liberty of making us talk about, which I don't think I'd ever be able to get Stephen to talk about, uh, Donald Trump's gentleman's area. Yes. But also much more serious subjects, such as Labour Party conference and what to expect. I talked to John Elledge about Lib Dem conference, which he's uh, survived intact. And also you ask us, what are you watching on TV at the moment? Anoush, do we have to talk about Donald Trump's penis? Um, well, I think we do. Because... <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Fail out, abort, abort. I think this is, you know, this is the story. For, for our listeners who don't know, who oh. will be one. Oh, you lucky person. Go, yeah, fail maybe, out maybe just switch now. the podcast off. You blessed um, innocent. But this is Stormy Daniels revealing in her, in her tell all, and she means literally all, mm-hmm. book, um, that Donald Trump's penis is like the character Toad from Mario Kart. Um, which is like a little toadstool that jumps around and is actually a really irritating character. Um, yeah, I don't so- think that's. I don't, I don't know how <laughs> that's far not the, the Sorry, analogy toad. runs. Yeah. <laughs> Drives a very small car it in the fifty cc race. Handles very well, but bad acceleration. <laughs> Yeah. It's a Mario Kart reference for our older um, listeners. Well, everyone was disgusted in the office, but I actually thought it was a really good comparison because. If you want to make global news, that's the way of doing it because everyone knows that character. Right. That wasn't my first <laughs> takeaway from it. Actually, my first takeaway from it was a very serious feminist point, Anoush, which was that I think it's really fascinating that you've had lots of you know, presidents who've previously put it about a bit, John F. Kennedy being an obvious example. But there's been this kind of incredibly systematic attempt to kind of shame Stormy Daniels, right? Like mm. loads of people tweet it all the time. You're just a whore, you know, like I've seen your vagina, all this stuff that gets kind of constantly thrown at women particularly women who have sex in public, by the very same people who are happily cracking one out over you know, their videos, right? As if yeah, they're like, yeah. suddenly they become kind of like Old Testament prophets. So they're like, don't, don't watch as your family think about what you do. But actually, she's just kind of completely refused to be shamed by it and actually has transferred the shame onto Donald Trump, right? We are not used to hearing men's bodies and genitals discussed in such kind of dismissive derogatory ways like she's taken all that shame and kind of put it on him yeah exactly and that's probably where she sort of takes social media and makes it her own because like you say she's been shamed on there but then she's used it and turned it against him in a way that probably women in the past wouldn't have had the capacity or access to do right exactly you don't get the scarlet letter put on you and go yeah yeah, yeah, hell exactly. yeah i did it what <laughs> of it right and i just think that's a kind of fundamentally interesting shift and i can see why i think playing plays into some of the stuff that's happening 
God, we got very serious very quickly around mm. Brett Kavanaugh being confirmed for the Supreme Court, right? Which is, I think that will. So for anybody who hasn't heard about that story, he is accused when he was 17 of um, sexually assaulting a, a classmate and then another classmate kind of came in and was, uh, and, and that's when the assault ended. And his accuser has now gone on the record, used her name. And it's very reminiscent to a lot of people of the Anita Hill case, which was when Clarence Thomas was, I think that was early 90s, yeah, um, was accused of sexual harassment by someone who had worked with him. And it was the most bruising totemic battle in American political life about the fact that, you know, so he, Clarence Thomas is black and he tells us black. He was, he's, he's, and he's very right wing. So I said, I've been a terrible victim of racism here. And I think Emily Nussbaum, the New Yorker critic was saying, yes, it was a kind of weirdly erased the fact that Anita Hill was also black and therefore mm. also a victim of racism. But for a whole generation of American women, there was this great reckoning then of actually, you know what, powerful men can do this and they will still get confirmed. Like they will sort of experience no, you know, you as the accuser will kind of get torn apart and raked over and actually that you don't see justice at the end of all that process, even if you put your name to it, which is what you're told to do, you know, don't be an anonymous accuser, like yeah. come out and have these exactly. claims tested. Yeah. Um, so it's a very brave thing for the accuser of Kavanaugh to have done. But also I think it does show again how things have moved on a step. Like it's, it's the same cycle again, but it's moved on and it is a kind of, uh, there was a terrible quote from a White House staffer that came out yesterday saying like, you know, if this kind of thing is going to get relitigated and all men will be frightened. And you're like, I don't think, all men are going to be frightened. But there was a great tweet where someone said, it's not that they think these cases are rare that's the problem. It's that people with this mindset think everyone does it. Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, it's the, the fact that someone would say all men would be frightened is frightening. Right. Because it's, it means that there's a reason. Yeah. yeah. They just go, well, like, well, haven't we all got things in our past? And you're yeah. Like, Actually, I don't think all men have got things in their, their past that are, that, you know, they are this, they feel that this guilty and ashamed about. But yeah, I don't know how we got to that serious point from um oh it's gonna haunt me it's the yeti pubes that are gonna haunt me Nish. that's <laughs> that's the bit i can't handle let's that's talk about i censored out helen <laughs> it was too it was too <laughs> there goes our clean rating Sorry. on apple um but uh labor party conference tell me how much you're looking forward to it on a scale of one well, on a scale of one to yeti pubes <laughs> hmm. <laughs> well i think labor conference is weird now because every time it comes around it's exactly the same. It's like Groundhog Conference. So so always the issues are Brexit, so the, leaderships div- uh, the leadership and the memberships divide over what they think of Brexit, anti-Semitism and uh, deselection. And then there's always the same chuntering about the parallel conference that happens alongside Labour Conference, which is the Momentum, the World Transformed Festival. So I feel like for three years now, that's what everyone's been predicting are going to be the big wild cards of Labour Conference. But they, they never seem to blow up in the way that in the way that people predict. So actually, I'm not excited at all. Right. OK. Well, <laughs> and that's not the only reason. Right. Be like that. But um, I did. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I felt last year there was a kind of hollowness to the main conference. Yeah. And then you went over to the Momentum Conference. And yeah, there were some people making like knitted uh, Jeremy Corbyn's or whatever in a kind of slightly alarming way. There was actually last year in the main conference, a woman who was selling I'm voting El Gato t-shirts. Oh, yeah. And my cat loves Jeremy Corbyn, which I thought was a bit mm, daytime TV advert break. Um, But (laughs) that's quite a snobby thing to say. But you know what I mean? A bit 
willow pattern plate in the back of a Sunday supplement. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, but he, yeah, and, and then there was, but there was a kind of great energy, but it was like very obviously two rival kind of power bases. Yeah. And the World Transform felt more exciting because it wasn't full of people advertising kind of, you know, renewable energy stuff on, on the conference exactly. floor. Exactly. There's no boring fringe. So even if some of the sort of craft stalls and some of the music doesn't get you going, at least it's interesting. And at least it's not just people giving out leaflets and stress balls with, um, you know, obscure union names written on them. Um, but I did think that the all of the energy was there last year. Um, it was the first, Jeremy Corbyn's first um, sort of outing at conference was at the World Transformed in, in a gig venue doing a, um, you know, sort of rousing oh. speech to the kids. Was that the awful one with the guys from Novara, which was a bit <laughs> magic grandpa? Well, I was there and it was, you know, I've never seen a reception for a leader like that at a conference before. So I wouldn't want to be too too derisive about it. Um, but I I feel like it has hollowed out the actual Labour conference to the extent that lots of Labour MPs don't even go who would usually have like a good showing on the fringe, for example. So you kind of lose some of that talent. Mm, I think that's very true. Um, you also lose the the news lines that you would get from from MPs on the fringe so that none of the headlines... Uh, there's a vacuum there so everything is concentrating on on Corbyn and the leadership I think that might very well happen again I did a fringe with John McDonnell last year the small businesses and it was packed it was so packed and actually I think it'll be even more packed this year because he is now seen as potentially chancellor in waiting right yeah it does just up the stakes of how important everything that they say is but your point about the MPs is really and it comes to something that I think we've said before, the fact that the shadow cabinet are largely invisible, right? There is Emily Thornberry gets sent out to do stuff. John McDonnell is everywhere. He's doing a mum's net chat this week. Yeah. Um, Keir Starmer does a little bit. And then apart from that, the sort of, you know, the tumbleweed rolls down yeah, the Diana street. Yeah, Diana does a lot. Yeah, but but less since the election, since she found that all quite overwhelming, right? I think yeah, she's, she I did suppose... a big policy speech uh, last week, right? But has has dialed it down a bit, and not in fact, you know, she did get a hell of a lot of online abuse and offline abuse during the election campaign. So I can see how that might, might have taken a, quite a big toll. But it does kind of leave you thinking. Whereas I think Tory party conference is going to be like proper leadership bonfire everybody waltzing around uh, weirdly labor conference might seem like there's only five people in the labor like in the, in the plp yeah one thing to look out for that might undermine what we've just been saying is that um is what you said about people taking john mcdonald seriously as a future chancellor um i was at an event yesterday with some people from the city and they were genuinely like what's his policy going to be on this they're, they're taking it seriously whereas before those kind of people who you'd refer to as stakeholders um weren't interested wouldn't even go to conference in fact it was difficult to sell fringe events at labor conference for a while because people just weren't taking them seriously I think like a lot communists like yeah. what are we going to say to them and then exactly. they're like and now are they actually communists yeah. or are they not we need to probably need to find out exactly and now they're like hoping that it's that the next manifesto is going to be something like the 2017 manifesto because it wasn't as radical as they feared um so so you might see a few more of those more conventional conference guests at, at this labor conference i also think it's worth dwelling a little bit on john McDonald. i mean we had um jason on two weeks ago talking about his interview um, with him and since then he's been very obviously doing kind of a big media round and I think Mumsnet is a tough tougher I mean they do oh, yeah. not pull their punches on Mumsnet like 
there is no respect for <laughs> for authority there. But um, you know, he has been very visible, and I thought his Mar show appearance as well, which he did the kind of re-entry Mar program where he mm. did it kind of again stared down the camera like Jonathan Sachs. You know, I think he's told us some really hard truths, but I would say to any Labour MP, you know, come and come and talk to come me. And talk to me. My That's... door is always open. Yeah, and I just wonder if he's sort of decided that he needs to be the one to kind of lead the party. It's something that's set something like a suggestion they're very, very sensitive to. But mm. that there is some stuff, particularly media stuff, that Jeremy Corbyn does not or will not do. And he's kind of got to step into that breach, right? In terms of the kind of policy engine, he's definitely emerged as the more interesting of the the two of them. I think he's become more of a politician in the time that he's been um shadow chancellor um than Jeremy Corbyn. And I think that but both of those those routes that they've taken play to their strengths. So John McDonnell is trying to look like a bank manager, for example. He's trying to look like he he understands how to play the game and that he's he's a safe pair of hands in terms of politics and going on the going on those kind of the Mar show, speaking to the lobby, that kind of thing. Whereas Jeremy Corbyn very much benefits from being removed from all that because he can say, you know, I'm not going to be sullied by by the games of the mainstream press. I'm going to do things my way. So it's almost like a good cop, bad cop in terms of their approaches to the media. And I think it works. Yeah. Um, as well as that, Jeremy Corbyn does use Emily Thornberry and Diane Abbott to do um, media outings as well. As as you mentioned um, in the election, Diane Abbott did basically all of that. She was always on the Today programme for the difficult for the difficult interviews. And Emily Thornberry does a good job of it too. So he's kind of got this, this guard. It kind of reminds me also or a bit like president and prime minister or like head of he's more like head mm. of state yeah, isn't he? like, like yeah and he's more like the queen and that he does the waving and yeah. the speech and he gives a speech he's got a stump speech that people love where he kind of every child just have a musical instrument and you know the yes, media's exactly. all against us and he loves to meet people and have selfies taken and they all queue around the block to see him yeah yeah but actually doesn't really like or enjoy the parliamentary skullduggery or the policy formation or anything like that so they've kind of worked into an interesting dynamic between the two of them. Well, yeah, next time you hear from us, we'll have hopefully survived some of Labour Party conference, including the New Statesman Party. Um, Jasper, our web editor, will not let me escape the stream without mentioning that we have also this week launched New Statesman America, which is our American homepage. We've kicked that off with a big deep dive. So why not send him a tweet saying that you uh, now love America and uh, maybe include a gif of your favourite American teen film? Uh, that'll just really con- don't He'd explain love that. Don't explain Knowing it. Jasper's tastes. He would love that. Don't explain it. It'll Go just for mean conf- girls. It'll just it'll just <laughs> confuse him, but it'll be brilliant. Thanks, Anoush. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And now I'm joined by John Elledge to talk about Lib Dem Party Conference, which you've been to. I have. It was very exciting. I mean, you're saying that with a note of genuine enthusiasm. I really like Lib Dem Conference. Go on. Because like Lib Dems are generally quite nice people. 
they're all very clearly having a good time and enjoying each other's company. And they're not bothered by any difficult matters of, you know, actual politics or responsibility. So it's kind of like sort of a cargo cult political party. They get to kind of play dress up and pretend they're doing important things, but also they kind of know they're not. So the big thing I took away from the reporting of uh, Lib Dem Conference, apart from obviously the discussion of Glee Club, which is basically all that anyone goes to Lib Dem Conference for as far as I've I can say. I've managed to avoid it two years running. and like, it's, You won't I'm, be able to avoid it when you're leader, John. I'm not going to be leader. This is, this is not. This is, this is a running joke that is getting out of control. It's, well, no, it won't be out of control until you are actually Lib Dem leader, at which point I will look at myself and think, <laughs> what have I done? And you go into coalition with the Tories and we all go, oh, I always knew John was secretly a Tory. No, what I've established is that really Really my support base among the Lib Dems is, is, is confined to the young liberals who, one of them explained, stan me. Um, <laughs> As the young people do, I hear. Yeah. No, it's it's like finally I'm popular with like 18 and 19 year olds because I really like building on the green belt. Um, so it's just like I always wanted. Like 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 four of these guys were like, oh, you are coming to our party, right? Like no one ever wanted me to go to a party as much as the young liberals wanted me to go to their party. And it wasn't it wasn't that exciting a party. Labour conference, someone always asked me to take a selfie with them. And part of me goes, no, no, nothing is too much for the fans. And then part of me goes, this is the most tragic thing that has ever happened to a human. I'm very, I'm very big in Labour party conference parties. I get asked for selfies at Labour conference. Do you? I do, yeah. All right, okay, well, let's never so, mention this ever again. But the thing that came out of Lib Dem conference... we cut conference, that bit out? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't see any way in which that makes us look bad at all. Yeah. Um, um, it's fine, it's on the podcast, you can say what you like on the podcast. Um... Uh, what I was going to say was the thing that came out of Lib Dem conference for me was uh, ruling out going into coalition mm. again, which I think Stephen Bush wrote a blog about saying, uh, well, then what is the point of you? Well, this is this was kind of my big question was like, this is the sort of thing which I'm, I'm halfway for a piece on now. So by the time anyone hears it, it will presumably be finished. Well, I it's hope. hostage to fortune, John. Well, yeah, Come on. Quite. But but the piece I'm, I'm going to write is basically what do Lib Dems think the point of the Lib Dems is? Because it wasn't just the cable ruled out coalition. So you got like a massive cheer for doing it. They're basically saying, we don't want any power. But they have these very lengthy, very passionate, very detailed policy debates where people are saying things like, and so I implore you to like agree to amendment, to vote yes on amendment three on line 61. And the whole room explodes. And it's like, what are they doing this for? If they're not going to be Do in government. It's a bit like the sealed knot, which was very popular where I grew up in Worcester, which was a civil war reenactment society. Yeah, it's a political party reenactment society. They want all the kind of like fun and political debate and, and you know, the drinking afterwards of being in politics, but they don't want to actually do any politics. Right. But I don't think that's confined to Lib Dems. I think that is the unique curse of British politics in 2018 is that everyone's got an opinion, but no one actually wants to do the bit where you have to make horrible compromises, you know, set a list of priorities find, you know, um, ways to bring people together in alliances, uh, ask people to sort of sacrifice things, right? Everybody, I'm, I'm really, I'm talking a bit about the Brexiteers here, right? Where it's like, we don't want oh, yeah. checkers, we want a world trade deal. No, we should just tell the EU that there won't be a border on Ireland. And if they put a border there, that's up to them. And you're um, like, wow, wow. And like, there are clearly, there will be people in this sort of Corbynite left. I'm not sure we can necessarily tell which ones they are yet, but there will be people who just shout betrayal. Oh yeah, the they get into but that, I mean that's not, and that's not by no means confined to them. You look but, at um, Macron or Obama, oh, uh, and their approval ratings, like literally the day they took office, just plunge. But I think the Lib Dems do have a specific version of this, where there was some polling last year by probably YouGov. They're the sort of trolliest of the the posters, of the posters. Um, the other posters are absolutely going to write in now. But yeah, but the, you, YouGov. We see you, ICM. We know. I you. mean, YouGov have specifically like polled stuff 
to settle an argument Stephen and I were having in the office about the DLR. Was that about whether or not the DLR is a tube line? Yeah, they literally like polled a thousand people because they knew that, you know, some idiot would write it up to be specific, me. You were that idiot. Um, Uh, Hang on, who did they agree with? Sorry, who was right according to the YouGov panel? I think it was one of those things where like we could both claim victory about different bits. I seem to recall it didn't actually settle anything. Well, it's either a tube line or it's not. But it wasn't the only thing. Like I think they they I think they might the public might think the DLR was a tube line, but there was something else on which I, they agreed with me and not Steve, and I can't remember what it was. That's my line, and I'm sticking to it. Anyway, we've gone down the cul-de-sac here. Yeah. Someone, I think probably you gov, did some polling about what supporters of each party would like their ideal House of Commons to look like. So as you would expect, you know, Labour supporters wanted a huge Labour majority. Tory supporters wanted a huge Tory. UKIP supporters wanted the most terrifying House of Commons you have ever seen, but it kind of made sense with the idea that they were UKIP supporters. Lib Dems wanted Labour to be the largest party. (laughs) Oh, that's adorable. I know. It's like, you know, even in this kind of fantasy world where they get to, like, design their own House of Commons, they're like, oh, no, we don't want power. So I think that is a specifically Lib Dem characteristic. Bless little hearts. So we talk about this idea, and it's come up in a couple of different other things as well, about them wanting to be kind of a, be a policy engine, right? Mm. And there is a point to that. I think we all look around and go, ooh, everyone keeps talking about a new centre party, but actually what other things? like? And I think Philip Collins has written about this. You know, what even he's somebody who worked for Tony Blair, doesn't want to revive nine, you know, the 1994 policy platform because the world has changed. It's a quarter of a century ago, of course. Like so. enormously in that time. I mean, look at the telly that we used to watch in 1994. It was awful. But um, I mean, honestly, the British Empire, John. Oh, okay. We'll have that conversation off mic. <laughs> Do you remember So Haunt Me with, with, the, with the Jewish ghost in Wilsdon? There were some great sitcoms in 1994. Okay, but, um, Red Dwarf, I will save from the fire. Okay, okay. So there's one, there's one Chris Barry work that I what will... What were we talking about again? <laughs> I will say from the fact... Um, Philip what, Collins doesn't want to re, uh, Right, but actually there is a point that... Um, and I think Jeremy Clifton, the economist, has tweeted but, about this a fair bit, right? There's, there is a, a centrist, whatever you want to call it, uh, a kind of social democratic policy programme that's got some radicalism in it, right? That it doesn't have to just be reheated, neoliberal, Blairite, blah, 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 and, blah. And there is an argument that UKIP, despite not having... Uh, ever had more than two MPs was incredibly successful in changing the shape of the course of British politics because they pulled the other two parties towards them. Um, and they made so, Cameron agree to put a referendum in the manifesto because he's worried about more defection. So, so one, of, one of the more sort of sensible ideas I heard talking to Lib Dems at conference was, well, we kind of want to do the opposite of that, where we pull the main parties back to liberalism and being a bit more sensible about Europe and so on because they're scared of losing votes to us. The problem with this logic at the moment is nobody is frightened of losing votes to the Lib Dems. But in theory, this could work. I think there is certainly a fear about um, among Brexiteers that Brexit could still slip away from them. I think that's something I mean, uh, we've had discussions about the people's vote on this podcast before. Mm. And one thing that that uh, campaign has done, I think, quite successfully is kind of gone. You could lose it. You could all lose it. You know, I was speaking to somebody at Lib Dem conference involved in, in, the, in the anti-Brexit campaigning who basically argued that there was a slight danger that the main effect of the success of the People's Vote campaign would be to kind of get most of the European research group guys back into line and basically buying into the Michael Gove line. 
that says, you know, just get out. We just can sort of change any Brexit them. will do. Yeah, any Brexit will do. We can kind of keep fighting after the event. But the key thing now is to get out. So there is a danger of a counter-reaction of them kind of just like piling in behind the Prime Minister. Oh, and a danger that you'll end up with no deal because of the meaningful vote, right? Yeah. Because, and whereas actually you might have had a relatively soft Brexit if... Theresa May would have just been able to give loads of concessions mm. to Brussels. Um, before we go, as we're uh, coming out of Lib Dem Party Conference, let's talk about, I reckon, between you and me, let's come up with five policies that um, the Lib Dem, like the, the, a new centre party could have, that the Lib Dems probably also have, and let's see whether or not the Lib Dems have them or not. I'm going to care. So building on the Green Belt, you're obviously a massive fan of. Absolutely. How, Dems- how did that go down at Lib Dem Conference? Okay, so another fun conversation I have is, is that every year the young liberals try and get building onto the green belt onto the agenda, and every year the party hierarchy won't even allow it onto the floor for debate, and there is a lot of anger about this. So it's it, there's kind of an age-based split rather than a, a political persuasion one. So they don't have that yet. They might have that one day. I, if I were founding any kind of new party, I would put decriminalising Class C drugs on it. The Dems keen. I think yeah, I get the impression they'd be quite up for that. That's uh, that's a good thing. I was uh, were they all monged off their gourd at Glee Club? Is that what you're telling me? I mean, I hope so. I mean, <laughs> if they're doing that sober, then God help us. But uh, what else would you put on there? Uh, I kind of like I like the robot tax idea. I think there's something in that. I mean, I'm not sure I have entirely thought through the logistics of it, but I robot like- tax. Yeah, and if you switch to a highly automated workplace, then you have to pay a tax on those because otherwise, obviously, the trend is always that you would replace human workers with oh, I'm robots. Not sure, I'm not sure I agree with this one. Oh, okay. Well, it's just like if you look at this is this is how industry develops, isn't it? Like we, this is how you improve productivity, and every other industrial revolution has created new jobs as well. And I'm never quite clear why this one won't. Like I'm told, partly it's about speed. But I still sort of think in the long run, like it's just a bit Luddite, isn't it? Saying, oh, you can't use new technologies. Are we going to have to have the argument about how actually the Luddites really had a point and they've been very woefully misrepresented by history? I don't know enough about the Luddites. I was kind of using it as a, as a phrase rather than it. We'll do that. Well, there's a lot of things we're going to be talking about off mic. I never am going to finish this Lib Dem piece. Okay. One, <laughs> on, one give thing... me two more policies that you think a centre ground party could um, could get into. I don't know if this is a particularly centre ground thing, but I think something the Lib Dems are keen on that I think uh, we definitely should do and that I think is probably going to be on the agenda sooner rather than later is local government finance reform. Ooh. Very sexy stuff. Yeah. But, you know, we've already seen Northamptonshire fall over. We're going to see a lot more. Do you mean in terms of of more unitary authorities and more consolidation? No, I don't mean that kind of stuff. I mean just like raising their own money. Mm. Like, because like they've had the austerity has cut local government budgets by 40, 50, 60% even as like the things they have to do, like just the things they have a statutory duty to deliver, like adult social care, demand for that is going through the roof. So, you know, you can only do so much with efficiency. Sooner or later, things are going to start falling over. And Northamptonshire was kind of the canary in the coal mine here, but there's a lot more coming. One, I think Chris Jarsnetti has what he calls the graph of doom, which oh yeah. just shows like the graph going of into, doom is very famous. Yeah, going into the 2020s, just showing that if you just want to basically, like, there you just cannot have any parks or libraries. Like, they just there is no, not a single penny left over for any of that stuff once you discharge your statutory obligations. So, so the solution to this that has sort of been played, has sort of been implemented, is like George Osborne was letting places keep any improvement in their business rate revenues. But that's a policy designed to help Tory councils get richer and stuff everyone else. Yeah, but there's been things like you know the uh, you know London council tax has got a precept on it to pay for mayoral stuff, right? There is people have 
chipped. And but there was that was still centrally imposed. Yeah, I think what we will probably at least be talking about. I don't know if we're going to get it, but just as like Osborne devolved the axe to local government, there is a logic in thinking, well, to stop stuff falling over, we sort of need tax rises. But why would the national government want to be responsible for them? So actually sort of freeing local government up to sort of like sort themselves out a bit, giving them a bit more power just so that local national government doesn't get the blame. I think that's at least possibly somewhere we could end up by the middle of the next decade. I see your local council finance restructuring and i raise you council tax reevaluation. okay yeah I mean, that, that's i mean that's also something we should do we're still on what 1991 values this is gonna be john and helen's incredibly unpopular policy segment but like i would put up inheritance tax but that's because i i would like to pay all my tax after i die but people get very mm, funny about that yeah no they do and people go oh well, why should you pay tax on the same money twice it's like, you do that all the time your tax when you spend it again that's how tax works and also it's not the same person being taxed it's not the dead person being taxed it's their heirs yeah it's about up there with myling classes uh, argument against the mansion tax which is you just can't just point at things and tax them and you're like unfortunately Mylene you very much can and we do I don't think she's really a sort of tax expert there is she she's not <laughs> I think... she's not Richard Murphy so no it's very true her spell on the Bank of England um, Monetary Policy Committee was bad although not that much worse than Murden King so oh and with that oh wait, we've got one more policy before I can't oh end god no I was really hoping you'd forgotten I've kind of run out of good this is I was going to say this is why I shouldn't be Lib Dem leader. I don't actually have any policies, but that's not really a barrier, is it? So, well, yeah. Do you uh, do you think that gay sex is a sin? No. Well, then you're already one up on Tim O'Farron, really. Okay. Thank you very much, John Ellidge. And now for a segment we like to call "You Ask Us." Oh, was that was that so was that what you were looking for? Into it than Stephen. Oh, I'm just really excited to be here. Right? Did you poison Stephen? No. <laughs> you were just at his flat looking at the enormous spire. That's like what? That's a joke about the Russians. Oh, I thought there was like maybe a, is there a, is there a cathedral in Stoke Newington? I've just never noticed. Anyway, <laughs> but I mean that that also is probably true. Yeah. Um. And the question this week uh, that I would like to ask you is, John, have you watched any good telly lately? Well, Helen, I'm very glad you asked. Have you heard of an HBO drama about a suspiciously familiar me- family of media moguls called Succession? Why, John, I have. And I have enjoyed it very, very much. It's and I so am, good, isn't it? Now, uh, it's one of those shows that's so good that I'm really, truly evangelical about it. So the, it follows the Roy family, led by patriarch Logan Roy, played by Brian Cox. Not that Brian Cox, just for in case anyone's getting confused about the physics sideline. And his children, who are played by a guy I'd never seen before, uh, the guy who plays Kendall. Jeremy Strong. Yeah. Uh, I hadn't seen him before either. But oh, there's a weird thing about him, without getting into spoilers, the episodes where he goes off the rails and stops shaving, he's so much better looking. <laughs> I know he's what like you mean. He's quite a good looking guy at that point, whereas like when he's clean shaven, he's just got a really weird shaped face. Oh, I just think it's more that he just looks very kind of mousy. And, and I kind of like him when he's unleashing his id. Mm. And then the um, psychopathic son, who I would say is called Roman, who is played by, as he's known in our household, Macaulay Culkin's brother. Kieran Culkin, who, who was... Um, the cousin who wets himself in the opening scene of Home Alone. <laughs> You've got a lot more trivia than I was really expecting about this. I'm, I'm enjoying this a lot. I, I've, I've been reading a lot about the show. I really liked it. But, um, and then Siobhan, the, uh, the daughter, 
who I can't remember the name of the actress. Uh, Sarah Snook, I think. Yes, I couldn't tell you. Because every time I see it on the credits, I think that is a great name. Mm. Um, And their elder brother Connor, who is played by the guy who was in Spin City, Alan Ruck. Right, but do you remember Spin City? I loved Spin City. Great sitcom about I can't, and had Michael J. Fox in. Obviously, as the, the it's it's one of the great sitcoms about municipal, municipal government. The only line I can remember from Spin City, which is probably problematic now, is that the guy who Alan Ruck's character is a bit of a dweeb. Plays he talks about the fact that a woman stole his uh, wallet out of his trouser pocket on the subway, and they go, "Oh, that's really terrible." And he goes, "I've paid more to get less." Jokes you probably aren't allowed to do now that we're in 2018. Um, but I really like his character because he's just the older brother who just like lives in a ranch. He's, like and, a, he's like a libertarian hippie who like... Yeah, yeah, who just wants to be at one with nature but is incredibly privileged and just doesn't realise it. And also incredibly right wing. Like he has like... He's that sort of, well, you know, why do we need the state? I already have money. He's that guy, basically. Yeah. Why can't everybody just like live on off their own devices like I do in my massive house and yeah. with all my maids? And my pay, personal favourite character, the fiancé of Shiv, Tom Wamsgans, played by Matthew McFadden, in a career remaking role. He's like a kind of camp evil Alan Partridge yeah. David Brent, it's got a flavour of that kind of, it's that uncomfortable boss thing. But something I really like about his performance is that, like, he's, like, clearly an asshole. He's, like, quite a n- nasty piece of work. He's terrible to, like, his staff and so on. But in a, a very pathetic and slightly sickening way, he clearly, like, is quite sweet to his, his fiance and then wife. Like, he's clearly, like... Enormously really, vulnerable. I think yeah. that's the thing. He's got the classic typology of the bullied who becomes a bully, right? Mm. And you can just see that, that he just he just revels in the tiny bit of power that he has over other people because most of the time he spends just being squashed. And that's such a good contrast with particularly Roman, who just doesn't give a toss about anything. Mm. You know, he's just the you know, rich boy that just assumes that the world will bend round him and, you know, it's all just washes off. Um, but that's what I think is notable that we're talking about. the Because, you know, it's got a great storyline, but we're talking about the characters because the characterization is good. And that's what gives me hope that the second series will be just as good as the first mm. series. Now, what I really liked about it is, like, you do go into it thinking they're all going to be terrible people, and they are. But they do kind of have layers to them. You do find yourself sympathizing with these incredibly like rich, overprivileged, overbearing people for the way they've been treated by their father and the kind of dif- the difficulties that's caused them as well. Like it's a bit sort of heartbreaking when like uh, when when uh, wary of spoilers, but like when Kendall is trying to sort of achieve stuff outside the family and he can't because it's like yeah, but your name is a problem. Because he's a Roy. Uh, yeah, he's just he's, a Murdoch. You know, yeah, he's effectively is like you know Rupert Murdoch's son, and nobody in any of these good causes he wants to get involved in will want anything to do with him just because of who he is. I think, and this is mildly spoilery, so um, lock up your ears with cheese. The thing I think is really interesting is it moves from kind of King Lear, right? It moves from here are all my children, I'm dividing up my assets, I'm playing them off against each other, and you know the kind mm. of dying lion. To by the end, much more. I was getting much more the vibe of Macbeth. And in the final episode of the last series, I was screaming at the TV for somebody to do something that is morally repugnant because I wanted them to do it, right? Which is fascinating that, you know, like, keep going, keep going in your life of crime, like, just do it. And I think the other thing that's really fascinating about it, which kind of comes back to a bit what we were talking about 
Lib Dem conference is the kind of hunger for somebody to be a leader, right? Mm. The thing that's fascinating about Logan Roy is he's horrible. He's a monster, but he's also his daddy. Like he is so in control that you know that he can just fix things that he will, you know, if legs need breaking, he will have them broken metaphorically, possibly literally. Like the fact that that father figure gives everyone else such a sense of security as at the same time that it's smothering is sort of fascinating yeah and this is this is something really sinister about it as it develops is that you know logan said so no it's okay it's okay son i'm gonna look after you is far more frightening than the bit where he's just kind of a loggerheads with the kids it's like it's far more disturbing when he is like no it's okay daddy's here yeah but i think that's just a really interesting dynamic because it really plays with your idea about what like morally what you know the character should do, but actually there is a real longing for them to do the amoral thing by the end of that final episode, I think. I'm so glad we talked about this rather than press. I haven't seen press yet. Have you yet. not seen it? Oh, it's worse than to, the trailer. I had to, okay, the bit that got me in the trailer was the bit when the woman turned to the guy and went, news, does that mean more to you than I do? And I just thought, Oh no! It's another bit with someone shouting the best layouts, the best online, just like in this office all the time. As I'm always that is press day basically for me is just me shouting the best layouts. Jason Cowley running around shouting news, news, <laughs> the best picture of Jeremy Corbyn. Nothing but less will do. Um, I hear that it's uh about like a the Guardian versus the Sun kind of essentially. Yeah, but they're all, they're based on the opposite side of the road to each other. It's also set in this weird world where it feels like the writer went around talking to quite old journalists who were sort of talking about the glory days of the 80s because there are occasional references to like things trending on twitter or whatever but it fundamentally misses the fact that like you know journalists basically all know each other now and so like people are sort of like who are you oh yes i saw your byline once rather than being like you know replying with some in joke that they've been like taking the piss out of this person with on twitter for the last three years it's just like it's kind of re- weirdly retro, but it's just terrible. So don't watch it. Watch Succession. Instead. I'm really surprised because Mike Bartlett is a, is a, He's a really good writer. So, I don't know what's gone wrong. Uh, King Charles III, his play was, that then became a TV series is really beautiful, like blank verse, like his version of kind of Shakespearean tragedy about the royal family. Albion, his play at the Almeida last year was very um, Chekhovian and, there was some bit. There was a bit where a woman rubbed soil on her vagina because she was upset that she hadn't had a baby with her fiance who died in a war, which I objected to strongly on pH grounds as much as anything else. Um, but had some really beautiful lines in it. Like the guy, Doctor Foster went a bit for my taste. I never watched Doctor Foster. Was it? Like- it went. Okay. Uh, it was kind of supposed to be like he's got a thing where he so that was supposed to be like a Jacobean revenge drama, right? Which is why I think it was in five parts rather than the usual six. Um, so I'm not sure what he's trying to. I mean, maybe this is supposed to be like a restoration comedy. I think he has a really interest in oh, reusing old forms. There are no jokes in that. This is the like other. a restoration comedy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but there's not even anything masquerading as a joke. It's like. I mean, this is the thing that I felt was wrong from the, the tone. It's like journalists, we have, we're quite self-regarding as a breed, let's be honest. But also like one of the ways in which we're self-regarding is we all like to think we're funny. We're not most of the time, but like you don't get far in the conversation without someone cracking a joke and the on press is just never happens. Oh, right. But like that awful thing, so you get stand-up comedians together where it's like a pecking order develops and everyone makes terrible, like, or like you know, really statusy jokes at each other. I think journalists yeah. do that an enormous amount. Yeah, um, it's like who can, who can make the most satirical observation, but there's just none of this in press. It's but that's also the thing I think is fascinating. So James Graham's Inc., which is a really brilliant play about the founding of the Sun, 
Dis does this amazing thing where everybody, no matter how bleeding heart a liberal they are, walks out of the first half having gone, actually, no, maybe Rupert Murdoch had a point. Because it sort of shows you this incredibly hidebound establishment mm. um, that was incredibly paternalistic. And there's a great scene where Richard Coyle, as Larry Lamb, the first editor, says, I effing hate brass bands. Like he's been brought up in Yorkshire with this ideal of kind of self improve working class self improvement. He's like, I just want to read about like football and birds and pools and the telly. And everyone else kind of goes, Yeah, actually, I just really want to read about that stuff too. And there's a scene that just captures the thing that people like about tabloids, which is they're fun to read, right? Mm. And I think that's what I always get the twitch when I watch something that's written by somebody who doesn't come across as a natural tabloid reader that doesn't acknowledge there is a reason that tabloids work which is that they're quite funny. Yeah. So I won't, I, should, I shouldn't watch Press, you're saying. Have you been watching Bodyguard? I have, I'm unconvinced. I haven't been watching it. And it's... not least because my mother phoned me up and said, I don't see why they've been going on about that man's bottom. And I thought, oh, wow, I'm so out. <laughs> I just, this is not a conversation I want to encourage. I mean, you've probably, you watched Game of Thrones, I'm sure his bottom must have been in Game of Thrones at some point. I mean, it's on the front cover of Private Eye, so I've, I've, like... I've seen it. It's just, like, it's not like I've seen Duty. bottoms before, Line John. Line of Duty is better. Yeah. Killing Eve? No, but I have heard good things. I've watched first few episodes. I like that a lot. Well, haven't we provided useful public service here? In the, the the key thing here, though, is you should definitely watch Succession because it is amazing. Yes, it is. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Anusha Kalian and John Elledge. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. We are recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Get well soon, Stephen, or at least get well enough that you can come back into the office. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.